Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Morning, Gloria, America, Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway, and I am back. Thanks to Generalissimo for sitting in for me on Thursday and Friday when I was at the RNC meeting, and I have come back in order to talk to Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. At hillsdale.edu is where you find everything related to Hillsdale College, and there he is on your screen if you're watching on the Salem News Channel and in your ear if you're listening on the radio. Good morning, Dr. Arne. Good Friday to you. Good Friday. Good morning. You know, you look much better. Obviously, the techies at Hillsdale have been working hard on your office. <clears throat> I think you guys were incompetent. It, uh, <laughs> no, I'm at home, by the way. This is my favorite place to work. Well, you that, take a tour I, I, of my I think it's wonderful. I think we see Charlotte in the background there. Let's get to it. We're going to do the River War next week and the week thereafter. But we take a break from our, our year of Churchill as literary giant to pause every now and then to do current events. And the current event of this week is that the Republicans have taken over. Last time we did current events, Kevin McCarthy was the leader of the Republicans, but now he is the Speaker of the House. And uh, Leader McConnell still the leader. First of all, uh, we've talked about this before, but you've known Le- Speaker McCarthy. It's hard to say, isn't it? Because when you've been calling someone Kevin and then leader forever, he's the Speaker of the House. It's kind of remarkable, isn't it? Isn't it, though? Yeah, yeah. I'm rooting for him. I, I, I like him. Uh, I, I don't I don't mistake him for Winston Churchill yet, but uh, here he is, the Speaker, and there's some things that are better. It is an unusual thing. You were running the Claremont Institute as a freshly minted PhD in Claremont, California, when now Speaker McCarthy was an aide to Bill Thomas. I am almost certain you spent time with him back then because you spent time oh, yeah. with every Republican in California in those years. And I'm, yeah. I'm just curious, when you meet people on the campus, do you ever say to yourself, because it's true of Hillsdale more than anywhere else, that person could be speaker, that person could be chairman of the Joint Chiefs, that person could be a justice, that person could be president? Oh, yeah. Well, they grow up, you know, and, and uh, so sure enough, I've got a whole bunch who are winning all kinds of distinction. Uh, I don't have as many getting rich as I have getting famous. Uh, but, you know, Supreme Court clerks and all that, It uh, and, they're, and they when they grow up, they're like Kevin McCarthy, uh, they become fully operational Death Stars. And they, yeah, you know what's truly what humbling, though, is when I, I have to carry my op-ed over to young Jack Butler, who's now the online oh, yeah. editor at National Review, and beg him to take a look at it. That's deeply injur- injurious to my pride. You know, I, saw, I felt the same offense just a couple of days ago when I saw his byline. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> But uh, this, this is this is not on the agenda. Doesn't that give you immense satisfaction to see your Hillsdale graduates taking over Washington D.C.? Yeah, and they, you know they—it's like your own children, and you're now your grandchildren and mine too. First, the first step is they take over you. Yes, yes, <laughs> so they do. It's, it's like there, there are people, there are many people who 
when they when they were students here, they addressed me with great respect. Uh, now I'm their buddy, and they tell me what to do. And they and they don't they absolutely take your parking place now. Uh, look, Dr. Arndt, President of Hillsdale College, I am at the Republican National Committee. In a couple of hours, they'll reelect Ronna McDaniel from, from Michigan uh, over a spirited challenge from Harmie Dillon, a nice lady from California. But, but Ron has got the votes, and I can count, and everyone can count. She's going to win. What is the job of a party? I've been trying to explain this to people, and it's a big deal to be the chairman of a national party. But I explained to my con law students, we didn't start with the Federalists and end up with the Republicans by accident. There's a there's an evolution here, and we're about to talk about next week Disraeli and Churchill and the Conservative Party are great. Why does it matter? Why do these parties matter? Well, uh parties are the coolest thing in America because they lived under complete disgrace in the minds of the founders. And then once they set up a country and got control of it, they set up political parties. Of course right they away. did. <laughs> and they continued to claim against them for the rest of their lives. And uh, and the reason is they're necessary. Uh, they're necessary because everything can't be done all at once. Uh, it's, it, it's not so much that there are divisions in the people. There are, of course, and parties represent those divisions. But uh, things come up. Circumstances change, they change every day, and you have to figure out what to do about them. And the figuring out process has to start with some people opposed to other people. And they come up with ideas and they contest for the ideas and then somebody wins. And so it's like that. Parties are apart. They're a part of the country. And they represent uh, tendencies, it's true, uh, but but above all, they represent different reactions to the news of the day. Now, the individual who introduced me to Dr. Larry Arnn in 1978 was a fellow by the name of Tom Fuentes. Tom the Greater, because there's also Tom Fuentes the Lesser, uh, Tom the Younger yeah, yeah. and Tom the Older. So we're talking about Tom Fuentes the Elder. And Tom was the chairman of the Orange County Republican Party, a job which he held for like 30 years because he loved the party. And he brought us together along with Brian at a Cocos in Southern Orange County. And we had a wonderful conversation. Tom was, quote, building the party, close quote, at that moment. Though I didn't know it. Yeah. That's what chairmen do is they connect people who might cooperate together in politics. And he did a fine job of it, didn't you think? Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I loved Tom Fuentes. I know you did, too. Yes. He he had a he was a his, he had a significant substantive influence because he was a conservative and that means that he looked back to the origins of the Republican Party which are the most glorious of any party in history in the career and mind of Abraham Lincoln and for that matter the founders of Hillsdale College and so he thought that it should be it should represent some principles and apply them to the news of the day and he caused, uh, he was courageous because uh, if you've ever been to Orange County, you'll just look around and see there must be a lot of rich people here. And uh, he was, his power base was not really among the rich. It was among the committed. And he could turn out troops and, and walk precincts. There's an enormous energy behind that. And... Uh, he, he looked at you and me, you know, as poor pickings back then, as the brains of the outfit. 
and uh, and he was very good at deploying us and getting us to say whatever he wanted us to say. And he would gather. He would always say when a big big talent came to town. Uh, by all means, have a fundraiser at the Pacific Club or at the Balboa Bay Club, but you got to do something for the troops. And there would always be an event for the grassroots workers where 300 people would come for no money. He didn't charge them, but he, he got from them commitment and time. I always thought it was kind of a genius move. And what he did then is what parties have forever done, but I don't know that they're doing as well. I hope Rana continues to build on this. They engage people in the civic life of the community. They're actually a good thing if you get people involved at the level of party. And and I think there's an opportunity there for the re-socialization of politics in a normal sphere as opposed to online but one-on-one. And I don't know that Michigan has a good party structure. California Republican Party is a wreck. But what do you think? Is there an opportunity for regenerating that social cohesion that, that parties bring to politics? Uh, it, it, that's right. It is a social thing. And it, of course it moves by neighborhood because people differ in different neighborhoods in their political proclivities or lack of them. Uh, but that's, that's right. It was, you know, if there's a really wonderful history of the civil war, uh, written by the name of comes to me in just a minute. And, uh, it's called the centenary history of the civil war. I'm in a terrible mental block right now, but he tells about the growth of the Republican Party. And it grew through local organizations called the Wide Awakes. Uh, There'd be, and they had banners, and they would march. Bruce, what's his name? Uh, And and he was, and they would, and you know, he saw that as a preparation for the Civil War, but also it was a heck of a party. And uh, people, I mean, a party in the sense of have fun party, and so that's right. That's, uh, you know, America is in some ways, it, it's become instrumental in its ways, right? You, you, I thought of this when you said one-on-one politics. Now it's algorithms and social media uh, jiggering and all that stuff, right? But, and people don't meet each other. And it'd be better if they did. And parties would do a lot of that. And speaking, by the way, uh, something to think about. Doy Henley and Buck Johns were the good pals of Tom and yours and mine. I wonder if Doy and Buck have established a chair at Hillsdale yet. I'm going to get shot by my friends at Chapman for daring to suggest Doy Henley give you some money. But they ought to to establish a a Tom Fuentes chair at Hillsdale in his memory. Because I'm sure Tom would be visiting. He'd basically want to be buried at Hillsdale. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arnn. The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English Justin Jackson picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in The Exodus Story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu newcourse. 
That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E. Hillsdale.edu slash new course. Welcome back in segment three of today's Hillsdale Dialogue. Dr. Larry Aaron and I are going to talk about the document scandal and the, the budget ceiling and all the different things that go on with that. But I, I do want to go back to the setup of the committees. Eventually, we did resolve. Leader McCarthy became Speaker McCarthy. We got the Select Committee on China run by Gallagher. has become insufferable and is often late now for his appointments because he's not Chairman Gallagher. Chairman Jordan running the Weaponization Committee. Uh, what is your hope? and fear for these two committees on which most attention is going to be trained. The Jordan Committee on the Weaponization of the Government and the Gallagher Committee on the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party. Dr. Arn. Uh, as far as I can tell, uh, these reforms that they've made, which probably weaken the power of the Speaker, are wholly good. Because the purpose of the, the Congress is not to do anything, it's to have a fight. And have a public fight. And that's, that is a very important step before you do anything. And we don't have those fights anymore. The, the laws are not made in the Congress anymore. Most of the laws are made in bureaucratic agencies, the names of which are obscure. There's last count 120 or something of them that have real lawmaking power. So it's, uh, so they're going to have an argument now. And they've got some smart people like Mike Gallagher. And and every the whole Congress is going to have to listen to him and his and the testimony that happens in his committee, and they're going to fight about some things, and it's not all going to going to be controlled and stage managed. Uh, here's something I hope for. I don't know if we'll get it, but uh, uh, in the last stages of the Carter administration, uh, which is hard to believe, but is was as impotent as the administration we have today, uh, there was real energy in the House of Representatives, under a, a Democratic majority, by the way. And they had something called the Joint, <laughs> excuse me, the Joint Economic Committee. And they designed the tax cuts that were instituted when Reagan became president. And then there was, in, in the House, where it was, in the Defense Committee, there were plans made for a military buildup that were soon implemented after the 1980 election. And so they should be doing things like that. And those things broke out into the public press. The press is much worse now, and it's, it's an odd combination of fractured and, and dominated, monopolized by the big social media companies and the big networks. But still, uh, there's an argument going on now, and that argument will get reported, and I hope it gets reported a lot, and it will prepare us for the fundamental decisions to come. You know, there was a, a, a glimpse of combustible Kevin McCarthy. That's what I call his dark side, combustible Kevin. He's normally Speaker McCarthy, the nicest guy on Capitol <laughs> Hill, the guy we've known for 35 years who's just the nicest guy. And then there's combustible Kevin. And the, some young reporter kept interrupting him and saying, you're not answering my question. I don't know if you saw this, but he rebuked her respectfully and said, the answer to my to your question is my answer. You don't get to determine what my answer is. And I thought that bit of pugilism was well-timed. You can do that too much, right? But but I think a little bit of that goes a long way because you just mentioned the American media is not the same. It's much worse. They are Democrats. They are thrown in with Democrats. We're going to talk about that next segment. 
I think he's got the skill set for this, and I think he's empowered people like Jordan and Gallagher and Chip Roy, who's going to be a force majeure, and Michael Waltz, who I have on often. I think they've got their best communicators identified and deployed. Yeah, you named some excellent people there, right? And if we're in a real crisis of our republic, you you name those names, and I'm glad they're there, and I think they may be up to the problem. Have you been watching Secretary of State, former Secretary of State Pompeo, make the media rounds? His book, Never Give an Inch, is now a number one bestseller. And it is a no-hold-barred, uh, full-throated defense of Trump's record and of Reaganism. And it, it's just a wonderful. It reminds me of the book I wrote. The first book I worked on It's called The Real War. It's back here somewhere that Richard Nixon wrote. And Never Give an Inch. It's real politique. It's, it's how to play to win, Dr. Arndt. He uh, he is uh, this is uh, this is not damning with faint praise, but you could think it was. He is the best Secretary of State. He he was he was like that as Secretary of State. I, I uh, uh, early in his time there, he gave a speech at the Heritage Foundation, and it was just kick butt. He just was telling it how it was, and none of this, you know, and very friendly to our friends. And fierce to our enemies. That's it. That's it. When we come back, we're going to talk about the debt limit fight that is underway. We're also going to talk about what uh, the RNC is going to do when it comes to the debates. Don't go anywhere, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Arn is, uh, he just blanked himself out of the picture, but we'll fix that. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu, hillsdale.edu. And if you want more, go there and come right back for more on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, Dr. Larry Arn. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. All Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at iTunes, at Spotify, at HughForHillsdale.com. Just Google uh, Hillsdale Dialogue and it will find it your favorite podcast. Subscribe and be smart. Learn about the past. Learn about the future from Dr. Larry Arn and his colleagues at Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, including your application, Hillsdale.edu. Dr. Arn, in this segment, I want to cover the debt limit crisis that is upon us. And it's not a crisis, but that's how it's being referred to. And I want to talk about the documents that have been discovered, not only at the home of uh, former President Biden and the the beach house of former President Biden and the Penn Biden Center in the middle of Washington, D.C., but also at Mar-a-Lago and at Mike Pence House. Do you have got any classified documents in that office? I mean, you were... You got lots of friends who have class. Did they leave anything there in the office at Hillsdale? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, <laughs> we have m- many of the papers of Winston Churchill at Hillsdale College. And uh, my wife and I, when we were working for Martin Gilbert, before she was my wife, we had to sign the Official Secrets Act. Oh, my. And we handled, uh, we handled tons of documents for years. And, uh, and, it's a mess, right? I mean, I, I, we, we were very careful. We weren't careful because, I mean, we were dealing with 40-year-old secrets, and some of them are still classified. Uh, the Global Strategy Paper of 1952 has in it which spots in the Soviet Union were going to get nuked. And uh, that is still, is to my knowledge, at least not declassified to this day. 
and I can even tell you how all that works. Lots of things that mention it are declassified. And so if you look in the archive hard enough, you can sort of put the story together. But here's my point. Uh, classification government documents. I mean, first of all, there are way too many of them. I mean, there are thousands and thousands to write the Churchill biography. I mean, they would hardly fit in this office. And, and so now Donald Trump and Joe Biden and Mike Pence are not selecting those documents to take home or not take home. People on the staff are doing that on the question, what do they need? Right. And, and so it's a big mess. And then the classification, I understand. I don't know. I've never had a security clearance and don't want one. Um, Cause I don't just worry about what I say. And I don't like to do that. Um, the it, it's so why do they take these things home? I'd be astonished, by the way, if either any of those three guys ever looked at more than 1% of those documents. 100% agree. Yep. Yeah. And so it's a mess, right? And we've made a national scandal. I mean, first of all, nobody is alleging, well, only crazy people are alleging that uh, Donald Trump was using these documents to betray his country or Joe Biden or Mike Pence, right? That's not what's going on here. And so... The great thing is carelessness. Uh, maybe they're guilty of that. Uh, I understand these documents. So I, I'll tell you the procedures. Martin Gilbert was extremely strict about getting every historical document in front of him and us to write the biography, and we didn't want to lose them. So they were kept in Churchill's filing cabinets, his own ones, which he wrote a memo describing the filing cabinet, it's entitled. And they're huge. Uh, the units by Mr. Chubb are the best, he writes. They're heavy. One person can't pick them up by themselves. Uh, and so there's down in the three floors down in the Bodleian Library, where you can't go if you're an ordinary reader, they're, they're in a kind of a U shape. And and some of the Churchill papers at my time had already gone to Churchill College, Cambridge. Most had not. And so I went down there and I had the keys to those filing cabinets. And then what would I do? I would go through a file. And, you know, I know how Winston Churchill filed his papers. And, uh, and, and I would pick out a bunch. And then uh, my wife-to-be, known to me but not to her at this time, uh, she would show up, and she had an Austin Mini, the crappiest car in human history. And, uh, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and, and we would uh, file, we would stick a bunch of files in the back of her car, and we'd drive around a little bit of a circuitous route, but it's only about 100 yards, to Merton College, where Martin Gilbert was a fellow, and we had access rights to the photocopy machine. And we would stand there and use it all day distracted by one another. And, uh, and so then we would take them back and put them where they belonged. And then the copies would go to Martin Gilbert's house. And then those are less precious, right? So these things are, but see, you can't make lots of copies of classified documents. Well, I don't know, maybe they do. 
But so the point is, it's bound to be a mess. And and remember, the vast majority of these documents are unimportant. And what what I remember, I remind everyone, one page can get 20 people killed. Uh, We lost all of our networks in China right before Mike Pompeo became the director. Something leaked and they rolled up all of our agents in China. So one piece of paper can get many, many people killed. And that 5,000 pieces of paper might not mean anything. We don't know what is in these documents. We don't know why they were there. What I can't figure out is why Trump got raided and Joe Biden is getting the soft glove. And that's the political issue. Not that people have papers. Almost every senior executive leaves with something that they ought not to and they have to return at some point. But I do not believe the prosecution of Trump via search warrant looks good for the country vis-a-vis the treatment of Joe Biden and oh, no. his documents. It's, that's actually easy to understand. And it's the danger of the age. People carrying guns for the government are taking partisan positions in politics. Yes. That's banana, that's banana Republic stuff, right? And that's what's going on. And now let's talk about the second, the second banana Republic issue is the debt limit. We are $31.5 trillion in debt. The United States has borrowed that money. In 2000, in 2000, we were under $6 trillion in debt. So in 22 years, we've run up $25 trillion in debt, largely because of 9-11 and the wars that followed 2008 and the financial panic and COVID. Uh, The Republicans say we have to take some steps. President Biden says, I won't negotiate with you. I believe the Republicans can win this showdown if they message cleanly what they must have for a deal and then stick to it. What does Dr. Larry Arnn think? Uh, yeah, okay. So I've been converted by you telling me what you think, and I'll, I'll embellish it a little bit. Uh, first of all, the debt limit has never been a winner, uh, and that's because it's too long-term. Uh, you know, the country's not uh, not going to uh, collapse tomorrow. And it's not going to default. It's not going to default. Uh, well, uh, you know, Christopher Cox, your friend and mine, a lawyer in Orange County now, probably very prosperous and very. of no use to our country that I can see. <laughs> but he was, of great, he was of great use for years and years and years. He had a Wall Street explain. Journal editorial yesterday on Thursday. Go and read it on the wealth tax. Yes. Oh wow! Okay, good, good. Yeah, see, because he's he's smart been guy, president. smart guy. Oh, he's awesome. I love that guy, and and uh, he he said a, a great truth that I believe today. Our credit rating is partly a function of the massive wealth of our country, which is you know the, the net's catching up with it now, but it's also the fact that we have never missed a payment. In 250 years, roughly, you know, yep. not that long, but almost, we've never missed a payment. And everybody knows how your credit rating works, right? If you default on something, it's going to hang with you for a long time. We have never done that. And so we don't want to be missing a payment. That, that was his view way back there in the day when all everything was much less serious than it is today. On the other hand, and see, that's why there's uh, this is a mess. Everything's a mess. We have no fiscal discipline today. And I mean, no, we can't make a budget. There's no process for that. Uh, It's all 
this tiny thing that the radicals won, that they're going to vote on the authorization bills, 12 bills instead of one, that's better, but it's no good because there should be, first of all, there's way too much government and it's way too centralized. And so it's too big to handle and nobody's really looking at anything, right? It just, they, they either do again what they did last year plus a bit, or else they just cheat and just put anything they want to in there. So the point is, we're going broke because of that. We are, you, we are in danger of missing a payment. At some point, people will have no money left because we're at 120% GDP to debt. We have never been there but for World War II. The only other time we owed yeah. this much money was World War II. And see, if it, it you know, if you want to get all gloomy, uh, I, I know all the gloomy arguments because I prefer to be hopeful, and people are always trying to get me to admit that there's no hope because they think if they can try and fail, I will persuade them there's some hope. Well, there is hope, but you want to get gloomy, right? We don't have a mechanism for making a budget. Uh, the government is 52, 54% of the, of the economy. Uh, the political system is deeply influenced by the administrative state. Can we ever elect any forces for restraint until we go over the waterfall? Uh, and the answer is maybe not, uh, but I think we can. When we come and back, I think, I, I think we can, and I think if we focus and put it on a T-shirt, if you just, uh, the first step is getting some recognition of the problem, and that is what we've got to get to in the last segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back. Dr. Arn is with me. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. On the new episode of The Larry Arn Show, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn sits down with theology professor Jordan Wales and computer science professor John Seifert for a roundtable discussion. What are, are there dangers? What are they? Because it's useful means, yes, it can't be stopped because it's the, the, the companies, the next level agents doing the technological advances. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's good. A hundred years ago, we switched, switched over from artisan craftsmen making our things to assembly lines. And that was more efficient, it was more productive, but it changed how humans were in the world instead of having the furniture in your house made by the craftsman down the road and having that person have that job, we now have a different relationship and a different arrangement. The, the kinds of dangers that we want to look at with artificial intelligence are, are similar to other sorts of industrial automation type dangers. Listen to this exclusive roundtable right now, only available on The Larry Arn Show. Find it on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio and subscribe to receive new episodes delivered right to your device. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu. Welcome back, America. Chew Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn. We're talking about the debt limit next week, The River War. Go get your copy and read The River War. It's a fabulous book. I read it for the first time in order to do the next couple of weeks with Dr. Arn by Winston Churchill. Uh, so, Dr. Arn, what should lead, what would Speaker McCarthy demand that we deal with in the debt limit negotiation? 
Uh, well, uh, so your idea, which is attractive, is uh, uh, name some big thing that we want and McCarthy does not. I mean, uh, Biden. What's yeah. Biden. Biden does not. And extract that. That's a good idea. But also, uh, what's the fundamental thing that needs doing? We need a way to make priorities in our country. And we don't have the political will or organization to do that. And so I'm thinking now that one of these smart guys that you named, uh, Gallagher and Tom Cotton, think mostly about national defense. Chip Roy. Roy. And and there are a number of smart Republicans who think about the debt. Ted Cruz thinks about the debt. We need a plan to get the debt under control in the immediate future intermediate future, let's say, five years, where we know in five years we can do these things and we'll know in 10 years it'll be gone. We need that plan, and it needs to be simple and clear and compelling. And then we can talk about the debt. Uh, If, if, uh, you know, because, by the way, the winning thing, you know, why was Donald, Donald Trump elected president? he was going to drain the swamp, right? And if he's reelected, it'll be because the people think he will do that. And all of, the, all of the ones running now who have any traction at all, they talk about the same thing because people see we're heading toward the falls. What do you think drain the swamp means to the average listener to the Hillsdale Dialogue? I have an idea, but let's hear what Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College thinks drain the swamp means. I have a very specific idea. Well, I I think uh, there's a kind of a, uh, how will I put it? There's one kind of thing, it's sort of rugged and rustic, and that is they're all corrupt back there and you can't trust one of them. and so get them out of there. Uh, a more, you know, we're a bunch of intellectuals here, right? Which makes us useless. Uh, the political system needs to function to solve the problems of the country. And I say that advisedly because what the federal government is for is to solve the federal problems. And there's a limited list of those in Article 1, Section 8. And then... We have seen in recent years that uh, in this mess that's overcoming our country, there are some governors who are doing a great job, quite a few of them, and they're tackling these terrible problems where there's no movement whatsoever in Washington, D.C., and they're dealing with them. And so get those things out of Washington, D.C., and get... You know, I mean, states have a huge advantage. They don't have effectively unlimited sources of revenue. So somehow you got to do that. You have to decentralize. Well, I think we are agreeing. I believe the American government think uh, the American people, the American government is way too big and they want it to get much smaller and they want it to go away. And the American government's become the HR department of every single company where nobody wants to go and nobody likes them. They're, they're the human, but whether it's the EPA or the Department of the Interior, the Department of Education, Department, everything's too big, costs too much money, run by people who don't care and are not doing their job. And it seems to me they're taking too much time off and they can't close the border and fentanyl kills 100,000 people. It doesn't work. So I, I think that the 
draining the swamp is, what in the world are you people doing with all this money? Because I don't think you're doing anything. And I, I'm, I'm just now radically convinced that the American people have had it with bureaucracy to the point maybe there is a sagebrush rebellion coming. Uh, am I overly optimistic? No, we have to do that and see what <clears throat> the glory of the American political system, according to the founders and Alexis de Tocqueville, is that local things are dealt with in local places. And what the Constitution of the United States added to that system, which was fully in place even before the revolution started, was an ability to address national problems. And that means war and borders and customs and trade, right? And, and now what it has done, and it's done this over the last 80 years, is they've turned every problem into a national problem. And you can't deal with them that way. No, you can't. Next week, we're going to deal with the River War. Uh, that was our update every couple of weeks. Dr. Arn and I do an update on the American political crisis because we are at a crisis moment. Doesn't mean the country's going to erupt or blow down, but we are at a turning point. 2024 is a turning point. Uh, one of such significance, it's almost impossible to overstate. Uh, but I will be back with Dr. Arn next week talking about the River War. If you haven't yet ordered a copy of Churchill, Winston Churchill's The River War, I suggest the one-volume edition, not the two-volume edition. Go and get it and read it. It's fabulous. We'll talk about it next week on the next Hillsdale Dialogue. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.